0: Well, you can ring the bell. Jim just taught my lesson. (laughs) Blessed assurance. Have you ever had someone ask you a question that had an obvious answer, and you answered, duh? If you were to ask me, Joe, do you like chocolate candy? I'd more than likely say, duh. I want to begin class tonight by asking you one of those questions. Do you want to go to heaven when you die? Duh. I'm sure you do. Most people want to, and above that, most people think they are going to heaven. If you read the obituaries, you see things like John Doe died Wednesday evening at the Erlanger Hospital. His services will be held Friday at 1 o'clock, and he has gone on to be with his Lord. Many, many obituaries read like that. And then there are others who believe they're going because over and over and over again they've been taught that all you have to do is accept Jesus as your personal Savior, pray the sinner's prayer, and you'll be saved. And you can't do or say anything that will take that salvation away from you. So all of those people are expecting to go to heaven. Then there are some who don't believe there is a hell. And the obvious answer is to that they must feel like they're going to heaven. According to the world, nearly everyone is is going to be there. But the Bible doesn't teach that the bible teaches the exact opposite jesus said enter by the narrow gate for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction and there are many who go in by it because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life and there are few who find it matthew 7:13 through 14 when we read words like that, when the Bible teaches there are few who will find heaven, does that ever concern us? Are we ever concerned that we might not even be among those few? Or do we feel assured that we're going to heaven? And uh, uh, we, are, are we positive? that we're doing enough to go to heaven. We're commanded to study, give of our means, encourage the brethren, visit the sick and other commandments where no limits are set. How many hours a week, for instance, must I spend studying the word of God? How many visits must I make each week to satisfy my duty to God? How often must I pray? Since the Bible sets no exact limits on these things, sometimes we might feel that we're not really going to be successful in living the Christian life. How can we be sure that we're doing enough? There's a verse of Scripture we hear a lot. As a matter of fact, we just heard it tonight. It's 1 John 1, 7. If we walk in the light as Jesus is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from our sins. As I prepared this lesson and thinking about the comfort and assurance that this verse gives, it is a blessed assurance to know that the blood of Jesus cleanses us. But in looking at this verse, a question popped up in my mind. What does it mean for me to walk in the light as Jesus is in the light? Is that possible? Jesus lived a perfect life. We're not perfect. As a matter of fact, in the very next verse, John says in verse 8, that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. So how can we walk as Jesus does in that light? Can we? We think about the Holy Spirit guiding John in writing this verse. And surely the Holy Spirit wouldn't have put this verse in the New Testament if there was not a way for us to walk in the light as Jesus is in the light. So, first of all, what is that light that we are to walk in and that Jesus is in? David said in Psalm 119, 105, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. He also said later in verses 129 through 131 of that psalm, Your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. The entrance of your word gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. I opened my mouth and panted. I longed for your commandments. So many times in scripture, the word light has reference to God's word. Uh, Then how do we walk in the light as Christ is in the light? We obey that light. Jesus was able to be perfect. We can't be perfect, but we must follow in his steps as closely as we can. Jesus gave his best in obedience to his Father. We must give our best in obedience to the Father. And when we do, we walk in that light. Therefore, First John 1, 7 is, I think, saying this. It means that we are to walk in the kind of light that Jesus does, the light of obedience unto God, but not to the same measure or degree as Christ did because this would be impossible. Maybe this story will help to emphasize what I'm trying to say. Sam Sneed, one of the best professional golfers who ever played the game as a member of the PGA, wrote a book on how to play golf. I was trying to play golf 100 years ago, and I bought that book. In that book, there were illustrations, diagrams, and all sorts of uh, uh, ways to make that perfect swing at the golf ball. I studied that book and I practiced, and I tried hard to duplicate Sam Sneed's swing. But you know what? I never was as good a golfer as he was. I tried hard, but I couldn't do it. Why? Because I just simply didn't have the ability that Sam Sneed had. I try to follow Christ, and I am a respectable Christian, hopefully living the Christian life. But I can never be a Christian or live the life that Christ lived. Jesus has more ability than we do, so we imitate him, and in doing so, we we try hard. And that phrase, try hard, you're going to hear some more tonight. Can we, as children of God, then, have the assurance of going to heaven? We absolutely can, without a doubt. John has written, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, that you may know you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. 1 John 5:13. 13. Note that John said, These things I have written to you. Well, these things are found back up in the beginning of the chapter, beginning in verse 3, where he says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world? but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Now John is here saying these things so that we may see the evidence uh, that eternal life has been provided for us and that we may be able with effort upon our part to determine whether we are doing those things that he has listed. Are we born of God? Do we have faith which overcomes the victory? And so forth. The basis for tonight's lesson and it uh, is based on a book written by Brother Tom Holland entitled Blessed Assurance. It's a great book and I hope if you haven't read it that you can get one and, and read it. In the first of the book on the first page, Brother Holland says, you can go to heaven and you can know it. We can know, but the absolute assurance of going to heaven comes from the awareness of certain truths. One, we must be aware that the need for soul security, not social security, some of us need social security, But this is soul security. Our souls must be kept safe. Abraham Maslow, a psychologist, published a list which he called the hierarchy of needs, the needs for a human being. And the top of that list was psychological uh, needs, which of course includes being of sound mind and having the ability to reason and and to think but the second in that list of needs in the hierarchy was the need for safety the need to feel secure and safe we insure our houses and automobiles and our health and and among other things uh we because we don't know what the future holds. But is the security of these things more important than having one's soul secured? We spend a lot of money to insure these things, but how much time do we spend in making sure the soul is secure? As a matter of fact, security of the soul seems so important to some people that they have gone to an extreme, and concluded, like I said before, that once a person is saved, he's always saved. And that's, if you believe that, that's really assuring, isn't it? That you have Social Security. But that's cheap insurance that will never pay any benefits. Security of the soul is of the utmost importance because of reasons declared by James, who wrote, Come now. You who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow or what is your life. It is even as a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, the Lord wills who shall live and who shall do this Or do that. Every day we see or hear about suffering as a result of an automobile accident, a drunk driver, uh, crashes or murders, and so forth, we just don't know what tomorrow will bring. We don't know how long we're going to live. And I guarantee you that as you get older, it seems that the years really go by by fast. As a matter of fact, it only seems I get one breath between one Sunday and the next. They come so fast. Soul security, though, is is not easy. It can be uh, damaged by material things. When they become too prominent in a person's life, maybe to the extent that eternal matters become insignificant, the things of the world may become the only things that are important to us and root out the true needs of the soul and its security. If we become too involved in getting ahead of the Joneses in this life, we're truly missing the point. Jesus said, for what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world? And loses his own soul. Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Matthew 16, 26. If we are serious about going to heaven, we will see the necessity of securing the eternal soul. But how do, how do you do that? How is it done? First of all, there must be knowledge gained. We must know certain things. Knowledge is vital because the assurance that the souls are safe comes from knowing where to find safety and security for the soul. We need to know who provides the security and where it is found. Can we find that security in our emotions? We cannot because emotions can be fickle and cause one to make decisions based on such things as the weather or how the stars are aligned or what people may say about us whether they're good things or whether they're bad things that bring us down have you ever gotten your feelings hurt we all have feelings we just can't let them be our guide to make important decisions in our life. A psychologist, Dr. James Dotson, wrote, from my discussion with Christians, and that's used in the broadest sense, it appears that God's will is most often determined by inner feelings and impressions. Thus, a fleeting emotion or subtle impression may lead a person to accept or reject a job, move to a different city, or turn to a, a, a college that uh, he shouldn't go to, or even plunge into marriage. In other words, to make that bad decisions that he will later regret. When asked, Dr. Dodson, when he was asked, how can feelings or impressions be tested? He said, ask yourself this question. Is the impression or emotion in in harmony with the Bible? Guidance from the Lord is always in accordance with the Holy Scripture. And this gives us an infallible point of reference and comparison to know whether our souls are secure or not. To own genuine soul security We must go to the Word of God. So our confidence in going to heaven is not based on emotions but on a right relationship with the Son of God. And that relationship can be known only by a genuine biblical faith based on genuine biblical knowledge. To ensure our soul, in addition to knowing, there is another necessity, and that is doing, being obedient to God's word. James fourteen seventeen says this, Therefore to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Also, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 27, paraphrasing, that the people who enter into the kingdom of heaven are those who do the will of the Father in heaven. And not everyone who says unto me, Lord, Lord, have I not done these things in thy name, but those who have done the will of the Father. So, to make our souls secure, we must know where to find out how, then study and learn it, and be willing to obey it. Secondly, we need to be aware that temptation sin is a challenge to our assurance. In the process of being saved from sin, we are told that the old man is put to death. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin, Romans 6.6. Remember this, that the old man of sin is put to death, but the world of sin is still out there alive and going well. So we need to be careful. God recognizes that we will be tempted because he reminds us, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the grace of God, that there we might obtain grace and mercy and help in a time of need, Hebrews 4.15. Down through the years, people have tried to come up with various ways to escape the temptation of the devil. Some have gone behind the thick walls of a convent or a monastery to escape the temptations of the world. However, they discovered very quickly that Satan can get through thick walls. People have attempted to cope with materialism by taking vows of poverty. They have tried to deal with sexual immorality by taking vows of celibacy, but none of these approaches have been effective. If you're ever tempted and feel like you are about to do something you shouldn't do, then Paul gives us a good way to overcome that temptation. In Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8, when you feel that way, take your Bibles and turn to that verse where Paul says, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, Whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, meditate on these things. Some of us may struggle with uh, guilt feelings because we confuse uh, sin with temptation. But there, there is a difference. The Apostle Paul had to discipline his body, meaning he was tempted. To hold, it in, to hold his desires under control, things he shouldn't do to prevent sinning himself. Sin is desirable, or we wouldn't be tempted by it. So exactly when does temptation turn into sin? Well, James tells us this. Each one is tempted when he was drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is grown, brings forth death. James 1, 14 and 15. Temptation, remember this, is not sin. Yielding to it is We must look beyond the excitement and the pleasure of the moment that sin will bring us to the consequences of yielding to that sin that's sure to come if and when we sin. Moses was aware of this, we find in Hebrews chapter 11, where it says that he chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season there in Egypt. When we are tempted, we must also understand that we will never be tempted above that which we can bear. We hear remarks sometimes in attempt to justify marriage infidelity, a statement like this. Well, it's, it's bigger than the both of us. With God's help, no sin is bigger than all of us. God can help us and he's always there. We are never tempted above that we can bear. A relatively new situation which promotes uh, sin has raised its head, and it's called biological determinism. And that just simply means that there are some people who believe that the genes that they were born with uh, tells them how they should act, like homosexuality or gender change. But this temptation is a temptation to sin by following one's feelings. And that's not obeying God's will. We cannot follow our feelings. People say they have feelings for homosexuality, but that's sin. Satan deceives us into thinking that we can commit a sin without consequence. He is so deceptive that he wants us to believe that he's our friend. He says something like this, enjoy life now because that's all there is. On the other hand, God wants us to be happy, to live in peace. He wants us to enjoy the blessing of hope and live in confidence that we'll go to heaven someday. He wants us to live with him forever. Is that not enough to motivate us to love God rather than Satan? Next, we need to be aware of God's keeping power. If we focus all of our attention on what we must do to just get by, we might lose sight of God's involvement in our eternal salvation. It's not just us, but God is included. The Holy Spirit, through Peter, makes it very clear that God's people are indeed kept by God's power for the salvation which is to be revealed when the Lord comes again. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away is reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the word of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. 1 Peter 1 3 through 5. God's power that brought salvation down to man is the same power that can keep his people in their inheritance. We need to do our part, and God will do his. We The need for God to keep us for eternal salvation uh, is there because of the environment in which we live. It's not easy to live here and be a Christian. Number one, it's not easy to be an honest person in the culture of lying and greed and covetousness that we see and hear everywhere. It's not easy to be morally pure in a culture that peddles lust and fornication and free love. It's not easy to hold faith in a day of atheism and in a time where entertainment is disguised as the worship of God. That's the way it is now. The Apostle Paul stated near the end of his life, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but to all those who love his appearing. 2 Timothy 4, 7 through 8. Paul knew that he had a crown reserved for him in heaven. But you know what? You have a crown reserved for you in heaven, and I have a crown reserved for me in heaven, and we can know that we will wear it someday if we remain true. We must love and obey God, but when we fall, and we will, We confess, repent, pray for forgiveness, and continue to try hard. True Christians are a peculiar people. When we were born in Christ, our lives were changed. Paul told us in 2 Corinthians 5 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. We are in Christ as his children as long as we keep the old things out of our lives and embrace the new things. And when we do that, we're walking in the light. Paul said to the Colossians, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above. Where Christ is, sitting on the right hand of God, set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil, desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry, Colossians 3, 1 through 5. Are our minds set on things above? Do we seek those things which are above? I think we do. We live in a world flooded with turmoil and war and and hatred and greed, but even in all of this, God wants his people to live in peace and confidence. Paul said in Philippians 4, 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. J.W. Shepherd, in his commentary on Philippians commented on this verse. He said, When we surrender self and lose ourselves in Christ, The fountains of joy are at once opened. Having yielded the heart wholly to Christ, this harmony begins a joy which the world can neither give nor take away. To be in Christ is the basis of all the true blessedness and means. That the whole of our nature shall be occupied with and upon him, thought turning to him, the will submitting itself in glad obedience to his supreme commandments, and all the flow of our being setting toward him in earnestness of desire, and resting in him in the secret of blessedness, if thus we are joined to the Lord, and he is in us, and we in him. Then we have that blessedness for which we seek, they who thus dwell in Christ by faith, love, obedience, and enjoyment can look over all the fields alive with enemies and overcome unrest and hope have opened to them the source of assurance. We respect God's word and we try hard. The British author C.S. Lewis once said that there are only two classes of people in the world, Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. True Christians are the ones who say to the Lord, thy will be done. But after all is said and done, blessed assurance comes from the full obedience of just one commandment in the New Testament. A lawyer came to Jesus one day and asked him, "Teacher, which is the greatest commandment?" And Jesus said to him, "You shall love your lord, the Lord your God, with all your heart, your soul, and mind. And the second is like to it, you shall love your brother as yourself. These two, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets." Matthew 22, 37 through 40. We read in 1 John 5, 3, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, for his commandments are not burdensome. Pure love for God moves one to obey God. Actually, sometimes love causes us to do things we wouldn't ordinarily do. In 1884, James Wells told this story about a little Scottish girl. She was carrying a a big baby boy on her back, and as she struggled down the road, almost falling at times, someone saw her struggling and stopped to ask her, Are you tired? Can I help you? And she replied, No, he ain't heavy, he's my brother. She did this from true love. If we really focus on loving God, then listen to us, this. It will remove all doubts and fears. We will study enough. We will give enough. We will pray enough. We will obey God. And anxiety will be replaced with blessed assurance of going to heaven. With a Living, active faith produced from our love for God, we indeed can sing because we believe. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of His Spirit, washed in His blood. Perfect submission, all is at rest. I, in my Savior, am happy and blessed, watching and waiting, looking above, filled with his goodness, lost in his love. This is my story, this is my song, praising my God all day long. And finally, on the last page of Brother Holland's book was this poem that he had written himself entitled Heaven Bound. Can I to God's heaven go when I'm so weak and frail? And is life safe and secure in Him within the veil? May I for His mercy look when Christ shall come again? And will I know the King of kings as my eternal friend? Will He say to me that day, Come, Of my father's blessed. And will my soul then be at home forever. In God's rest. Can I from all pain be free. For an eternal day. Will he really cause death to cease. And wipe all tears away. The answer is from the words of truth. You should not troubled be. You're born again. God's faithful child, and you will live eternally. Love God, be happy, and try hard. Thank you.